It's Monday, June 18th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is Michael Wood, a photographer who I became aware of through one of my listeners, Scott Jones, who had attended one of Michael's Mixong workshops. Based on a Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, Mixong, which translates to good eye, is an approach to the nature of perception. If you've ever gone out shooting and found yourself in what some of us call the zone, that mental state where we're really in tune with what's around us and, and the images suddenly seem to be everywhere, you'll have a sense of what Michael's approach to photography offers. It's an interesting topic, and I personally appreciated the opportunity to discuss an aspect of photography that I've experienced myself, but that I never had the opportunity to dialogue on in the way that I did today. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Michael Wood. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, it's it's great to have you on. It's it's one of the conversations I've been looking forward to. Well, thank you for having me. L- let's start off with your your career as a photographer, because I see the, here that you actually had formal training as a photographer up in Canada. So, before we get into the discussion of, of the way you work currently, why don't you tell me about your beginnings as as a, as a photographer? Well. I began studying photography in Canada. There was a visual arts school near Toronto, Ontario, and I studied there for three years. And um, I pretty much studied all of the various types of photography, and I ended up kind of specializing in portraiture and fine art in college. And when I left college, um, I had about a 15-year career as a portrait photographer and also um, I did a lot of work for newspapers, magazines, kind of editorial stuff. Um, and that went on for about 15 years or so. Um, I did a lot of things with, you know, fashion models. And uh, the computer company Hewlett-Packard, actually, I was working for their magazine, and they would send me around to various places to photograph the computers. So it was a, it was a pretty good career. Uh, until I uh, I ran into these uh, the uh, what, what's known as the Dharma art teachings or the Shambhala art teachings of Chogyam Trungpa, who was a Tibetan Lama who lived in the United States um, from about 1970 to 1987, and um, being exposed to his photographs and also being exposed to his writings on art. I really did a very fast U-turn in my career. Um, I had become somewhat frustrated with my photography. I felt it was very conventional and lots of pretty pictures, lots of postcards. I think what happened to me when I was in college was that there was a fair amount of templates installed of what is a good photograph. And so I spent a lot of my free time photographing, just looking for those templates. And really, I ended up photographing, you know, calendars and greeting cards, just like everyone else did. Mm. And uh, I reached a level of frustration with that. 
And kind of just at that time, I was exposed to these particular teachings and decided that I really wanted to make a change. What did you see in the photographs that you were seeing that you that you that really kind of inspired you and that and what were the qualities of those photographs that you weren't seeing in your own work but you knew that you wanted well i think the quality i think two things happened to me one was um, in 1978 and 9, I actually started practicing meditation under the guidance of Chogyam Trungpa. And I started noticing at that point, because I was doing a lot of meditation, that I was actually having perceptions, like direct perceptions, um, rather than ideas of what I should photograph and what I shouldn't photograph. So... <laughs> That being said, I noticed that just inherently and intuitively, my way of looking at the world was becoming much more direct, much more personal, and much more unfiltered by concepts and ideas. Um, and then I, I had an opportunity to see some of his photographs, and I think the quality of them was that they were completely unique, that they were very direct, and they had a very strong quality of his experience rather than the quality of uh, interesting subject matter. And I, I also noticed for myself that that was what was happening to me, that <clears throat> my perceptions were coming more personal. I was being just stopped by aspects of the world that fell outside the box of what I'd been trained. Um, they didn't have that template quality of, oh, there's a great sunset, I need to get that. It may be just, I'd be standing at my kitchen sink, and I'd mm. notice the steam rising up and uh, forming on the window, and then freezing outside. And, and I would start taking photographs of that kind of thing, real day-to-day, -day ordinary, personal reality. Mm. So I think that not only were his teachings... Um, very moving and very shocking, but so were his photographs. There was often a quality of visual space that I was quite unfamiliar with. Um, and it was clear to me that he was photographing his direct perceptions rather than any kind of idea of what a great photograph is, what a great photograph isn't. Mm. For, for our listeners and they not, may not be familiar with it, why don't you explain the definition of, of mixang as well as what the guiding principle of that is, is because it's, it's such a big part of your photography. Well, mixang is a Tibetan word, and it, it translates as good eye. And um, I would say that, you know, and I'm introducing students to this notion, I would say that um, the most basic point is that we always have a choice in how we see the world. Um, we can say that, uh, you know, from the point of view of the seer or the photographer, we might have a lot of ideas about... Uh, what's good and what's bad and what's ugly and what's beautiful, what would make a great photo and what wouldn't make a great photo. And that's how I functioned for many years. And I think the most basic aspect of Mixong is to somewhat soften that border and boundary and let go of the 
fixed view that we have about photography and about our world. Oftentimes what we do is we just label everything instead of seeing directly, um, as I'm sitting here in Boulder, Colorado, I'm kind of looking outside, and, you know, there's a red car sitting there. And rather than just saying, you know, red car, rather than just saying, oh, it's a Nissan station wagon, and oh, isn't it nice, I'd really like one of those, we could actually move our perceptual experience into looking at the actual form of the car, the color, the light, the texture, the space, um, the smoothness, the way the windows reflect, all of those things. So in some way, rather than just saying car, house, tree, we begin this particular journey by um, deconstructing that hard world of labeling. And uh, we actually begin the, the process of unlabeling. So our experience is less filtered through the labeling mechanism and more raw. Of course, we know it's a car, but our experience could be much more blended. It could be much more direct and seeing, feeling, uh, touching with our eyes rather than just saying, you know, good car, bad car, I'd really like that one. I, I really hate that one. It's a real junker. Um, so that's kind of what the, the very first thing that we start with in Mixong is to um, put the clutch in on the labeling mechanism. And when we do that, our experience of the world becomes much more fresh, much more alive, uh, much more direct, and very vivid. And the photographs hopefully express that quality of vividness. Hmm. It's really interesting because when, when I was reading the website and I was also watching this, this short video, I realized that a lot of the things that you talk about things are things that I do. And, and, and like, for example, it's just trusting what I'm responding to because sometimes I may look at a car or a wall and, and it's not so much that I'm looking at the wall but I'm sort of reacting to something about it either like you said the texture the color uh, maybe even the contrast of light on, on a particular surface and sort of giving into that and being willing to photograph it and separating that from the, the that part of me that makes a judgment about it like oh you know that's not an interesting photograph so i'm not going to even raise raise the camera so i think it's that kind of contrast in terms of our perceptions and our willingness to act on it is something that we as photographers constantly uh deal with and and i'm curious as how you how that fits into this particular philosophy of shooting well, you know, I think you really did say it. Um, and what I'm finding more and more as I go along, that uh, students that come to these particular classes I offer have, have reached a, a somewhat twofold point, and that, which is exactly what happened to me. One is they've been photographing conventionally for a long time, and they've become just uh, somewhat frustrated with that. I think they know there's more. And also I think what happens to them is that they, they have those experiences that you just described where it's not about a pretty picture, it's about something more direct. But they can't exactly trust it because their photographic training or the world of photography um, is very strong and they think, and they, so they just kind of devalue those experiences, skip right over those experiences. And what I find with people is that this kind of seeing is very innate. We all do it. We all notice little details of our life visually, but we just skip over them because it seems unfamiliar, which is 
it, which is somewhat of a catch-22, because it's actually the way we're made to see. Mm -hmm. um, the conceptual framework by which we label our life is um, something we've just learned, and I think undoing the education and undoing the labeling mechanism is very powerful. There's a great story about um, Claude Monet, the Impressionist painter, who really was a guy interested in perception all the way along from beginning to end. And uh, at one point late in his life, when he was living in Giverny, he had a... a um, uh, someone there who made dinner and brought him wine. And one night he asked him, he said, from now on, I'd like you to bring me the wine at, for dinner, but I'd like you to actually take the label off. And, and the fellow said, why is that? And he said, because I don't want to prejudge the taste. I don't want to have some sense of, oh, that was a great year, that was a great variety, that was a great um, winery. I want to actually, my only experience I want to have is when it hits my tongue, I can taste it directly. So we could say that's what we're trying to do with Mixong is is dissolve that labeling mechanism, dissolve that fixed point of saying, this is so beautiful, this is not. So in Mixong, when we do courses and, and so on, we're often exposing ourselves to, you know, the, the raw form of the world, the textures of the world, and confronting them directly, and also we're, we're getting away from just photographing things that we think are conventionally good, good subject matters. And I've always said to students, you know, if you can't see, really see directly what's happening in your immediate environment, in your home, in your office, then you could go to Tahiti and you're still going to be blind. You're just going to see conventional photographs. Yeah, what's really interesting is is the um, the simplicity that I see in a lot of your images, because it's it's like the small little um, details that people miss, like you just like you just said that they're constantly around them all the time, the things that they kind of overlook because they they don't think of it as as potentially being a, a, an interesting photograph. Um, well, I think also it's it's an actual experience, like in, in this particular kind of photography. I always take my camera with me wherever I go. It might be just walking to the grocery store or the bank. It doesn't really matter. But rather than just going from point A to point B and running on some sort of autopilot that allows me to get there and having some vague sense of, oh, it's a red light, I should stop, there's some quality of having the intention in your mind to actually pay attention in each step to whatever is there and not having a big judgment about it. Like, you know, walking from, from home to the bank, it's just a sidewalk, it's just grass, it's just the pavement, it's just cars, it's just trees, it's just light. But we could actually have the experience of taking each step and being present and noticing and being inspired to photograph those simple little details rather than constantly planning our next big adventure mm -hmm. to go, you know, up to the top of the Rocky Mountains where I live and then I could really see something. So my logic is if you can't see here, if you can't see now, 
you're not going to see anything at the top of the Rockies, just another photograph that everybody else has taken. How important it is is preparing yourself to go out and shoot? Because I know for me, I'm like you, I am always have my camera, but you know, there are certain days where I'm just like, my mind is just loaded with a bunch of thoughts and, and anxieties, and even though I don't have my camera, I really don't shoot anything, largely as a result of the fact that I that I'm I'm not seeing, you know. But there are other the other days where I go out there and I'm in a just a much better place, um, sort of emotionally, to be observant. But what's how does that play for you and what's your process for being able to prepare yourself when you are gonna go out there to be receptive to the opportunities that, that, that are out there? Well that's a really great great question. <clears throat> when we start teaching these classes, one of the first things we talk about is um, where's our awareness? Um, our awareness being a mixture of our eye, our basic sensors, which is somewhat like a camera lens, is completely clean and open. But as things come through our eyes, we run them through the filter of mind. And our mind may be, to start with, completely preoccupied with our own internal dialogue. Um, you know, for example, I often tell people a good example that I could drive from, uh, you know, from here to uh, Arizona, and it, I may be, you know, eight hours in a car, and I may not see anything. My internal dialogue of expectations about the future and remembering the past would be so strong that it really just blinds me to what's happening in the present moment. Um, and then, you know, if you get really bored with your own internal dialogue, you can turn on the radio and see what everybody else is thinking, which is kind of a, a funny thing, but we all do that. So in classes, we actually have very specific and very strong exercises to dislodge our internal fixation on what's happening in our mind, our emotional state, our plans of tomorrow, our memories of yesterday. Um, one of the strongest ways we do that is we actually just stand in one position and we turn through the environment and we just notice color. Not colorful things. We don't label them as an interesting billboard or a red car. We just actually touch colors with our eye and mind and move on. What that actually accomplishes is that it helps our eye and mind synchronize. It helps them be in the same place at the same time. So it's a very potent and simple um, way to engage direct perception. It's, it's somewhat like meditation. You know, when I started working with Mixong, I, I used the model of meditation, which is kind of putting your mind and your body together using breath. Well, in this case, we're using color to both synchronize our eye and mind together in one place and also to allow our eye and mind to go out and explore the world. So it's really a kind of a dislodging of our internally fixed awareness. And I think that's the, the one thing in Mixong that really works. So when I go out for a walk, for example, if I'm feeling like, you know, my batteries are somewhat low and I'm not really seeing anything or I'm in a really funny emotional state or I'm depressed or have migraine or something, I'll just go out and I'll, and I'll engage some sort of intention to synchronize my eye and mind, and the most powerful way to do that is through color. Hmm. I, I really respond to that, but I, I, for lack of a better term, I kind of see myself as, I guess, a right brain 
thinker in terms of when it comes to photography. You know, I'm, I'm always giving into that sort of impulsive side of myself and, and being willing to surrender to that sort of reactive side of me. But I can imagine that for a lot of people who are sort of left brain, who like to think, uh, think things through, through who, who like to who like to adhere to the rules of you know of photography like the rule of thirds and being aware of um of you know opposite colors in a color wheel and things like that that they use to help guide them in shooting that somehow this can be sometimes be a, a challenging challenging way of of shooting and and of approaching photography i'm sure that you have encountered people like that in your courses how how do people who think along those lines uh, um, what's what's the process for them to be able to sort of embrace and sort of incorporate this type of way of shooting into their into the way they work? Well, you know, when people come to classes, they come from you know all different kind of places in their in their journey. And for some people, it's more um, it's more available. And for some people, you know, it's kind of like in a sense you have to build new pathways. And um, but I, I always tell everybody, you know, that. This is, I often tell people this isn't really a photography class. This is a, this is a class about perception, about how we can actually open our eyes. So I take a lot of the pressure off of the camera. In fact, I often say to people that, you know, really, if we in any moment open our eyes and we have a perception, the first thing we need to do is we need to stay still. We need to stop our habitual desire to get to work, get it done, move on. This is what makes it contemplative, I think, that you actually could stop and fully engage with with what has stopped you in the world. And at that point, not only could you appreciate it and mix more deeply with the object of perception, but you could just stay still, which is something in our world and our society, and especially right now, people don't do. They move very fast. So before before we actually kind of grab our camera and start, you know, blasting away like a machine gun, we actually stay with the perception and we try to um, actually discern its nature. We actually say, what stopped me? You know, was it a car or was it red or was it light or was it you know, this or that. And rather than coming up with some idea of how we'd like to compose it, we actually let the subject matter itself suggest the composition. And then, in a very simple way, we use this wonderful media medium to um, form the equivalent of our perception. You know, equivalence is one of those words that's been around in photography since, since Steiglitz brought it up. The quality of equivalence is what actually came through our barrier, what actually stopped us, what made us stop, what made us appreciate. So then we use the camera in a very simple fashion, not through filtration and not through, you know, extensive use of all sorts of lenses and so on and so forth, but we simply try to express what stopped us. So I think that when we have people who are kind of left brain, right brain, it doesn't matter. We kind of, in a sense, put them all through the the same funnel. It's got to be based on your experience. It isn't going to be based on your idea of your experience or your idea of what you're seeing. There's a, there can be a quality in, in all of us that is more intuitive, that's more direct, and that doesn't have the quality of thinking, thinking, thinking. Um, you know, I tell people, 
people often write me and say, well, you know, I'm on my way to China now, or I'm going to the Bahamas, and I'm planning to do a lot of this and that. And one of my favorite lines from a great movie, which is called Buckaroo Banzai, Mm -hmm. he says, uh, no matter where you go, there you are. So that's one of my that's one of my my the strongest things I can say to people because if you can't <clears throat> if you can't work with you know who you are how you perceive how you photograph it doesn't matter where you go because yeah. you're still going to drag that baggage with you. There are a couple that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. There are a couple of shots I I want I want to talk to you about because and and both of them are I think images that are that are present themselves constantly to, to sort of all of us but i'm really curious to see what your take was in in these particular images like you have one um among your your main gallery of, of your favorite photographs of a stoplight and a pole and the rest right. is sort of just a white white background and that's a yes. that's a scene i think everybody encounters if they live in a in, live in a city or anywhere with with stoplights and but I, I look at that and I go, I never would have seen it in that way. And I kind of want to know where you were at at that moment and what led you to, to create that image in the way that you did. Well, you know, part of Mixong is it's, it's really interesting because um, we often talk in our um, introductory levels about allowing ourselves to be available. If you're not available, which means if your awareness is just stuck in, um, kind of internally fixated, then to start with, you're really not going to notice much. So once you kind of allow that to be dislodged, surprising things can occur. And at that particular moment, I was actually, that's, I was living in Halifax, and I was walking to work one day, and it was uh, kind of a wintry morning where the sky was just all bright clouds so the sky was very white and we're all there's probably you know 10 of us standing at the at the light and um (laughs) the funny part was that one of the people actually started walking on the red light and uh and everybody followed him (laughs) which was pretty interesting kind of showed me that we were all somewhat stuck inside of our our head and we weren't even noticing that the light was not green. Hmm. So then we all stepped back again, and as I looked up at the signal light, it just became more than stop, go. I just saw this brilliant silver pole and this very vivid red light against the white sky, and um, I just put my camera up and shot immediately without any particular thought process. Um, but it, it certainly went from uh, a very uh, conventional, habitual reaction to just walking out on whatever you think the color of the light is to a direct perception. So I don't know if that helps you with that. No, I think it's really interesting because it, it speaks to the whole idea that there are a lot of objects that, we are, that we're around that we associate um, um, a very rigid um, uh, concept with, like, like if you have a stoplight that it directs you when to go forward and when to stop and and all that and then seeing beyond that to seeing it more as um, uh, an object that, that uh, object of color that has shape that has light is something that takes a little more 
urging in order to, to get to get there. And I'm sure that there are probably a lot of objects around us all the time that that we see in exactly that way. And and because of that, we end up not taking pictures of them or taking pictures of them in a way that they kind of reflect the kind of uniqueness of, of vision that that particular shot does. Well, I think the, the two things that I often present are, first, availability is necessary. Second, there needs to be a softening and a relaxation of our conceptual overlays of everything. I'm standing on the street here in Boulder, Colorado, right in front of where I live, and the other night somebody broke into a car, and there's a shattered glass everywhere on the sidewalk. So to start with, you know, I notice people walking up and down the street all day, taking their dogs for a walk or riding bicycles, and, and nobody notices it. And so, first of all, there's noticing this kind of amazing, almost aquamarine uh, color of the broken glass. So there's first availability, you could notice it. Secondly, rather than saying, oh, isn't that too bad, somebody got their car broke into, that's a, that's a crime, that's a this, that's a that, you know, label, 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 all of which is relatively true. But there's actually another way to look at the world where you could examine this kind of beautiful glass on the ground. It's like little jewels strewn across the, strewn across the sidewalk. So that kind of gives you an idea of the two parts of it that you need to be able to um, notice through relaxing our internal fixation. And once you do notice, you could go further. Rather than just labeling it as a good thing, a bad thing, it could become this extraordinary object of beauty. Hmm. The other shot that, that I like is the one of a bare-chested boy, and I guess his head is tilted down. So you're shooting down from the top of his head. So you don't really see his eyes, but you see the shape of his nose, and uh, the shape of his head is sort of contrasted against the the, the, his body, which is filling up the frame. Do you know the shot I'm speaking of? I do. I, I, I love that shot. I actually have it hanging up in my house because it happened to me my grandson. Yeah, that, that is just a fantastic shot, and it's one of those moments I think we've all seen, but it's just, I, I look at that image, and I'm just sort of riveted uh, by it, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think it's, it's just sort of... Um, I don't, you know, I really don't know what it is. I think it's, there's just something about the fact that it's something that I've, I, I guess what it is, is that I'm seeing something in a way that I never would have thought of seeing it before, you know? Well, exactly. You know, here, here I was, in, I was visiting my daughter and my grandsons were there and we were outside and my grandson had been running through the sprinkler and getting completely soaking and then he would come over and sit in the sun, then he'd go back and run. So... At this particular moment, I was sitting beside him, and I just looked at him. In Mixong, we often talk about a, there's a gap, and, and what the gap is, is there's a gap in our um, projections of our likes and dislikes. And rather than say, rather than just having a, um, an idea that I'm going to shoot, you know, cute grandson pictures, which of course I always do, because when you have grandsons, you just end up doing that. <laughs> but at this particular moment, what I noticed was kind of all texture, all light, all form. I noticed his wet hair. And he was looking down at what he thought was a little bite on his leg. That's what he's doing. But I think my strongest perceptual experience of that was the way his his skin being you know 
four years old was completely luminous. That there was like a an inner light, not just the external sunlight, but there was a basic purity to his skin, kind of unblemished. And of course, I had to work just to get the right exposure. And I remember after I took that, I was reminded of some photographs that Edward Weston took of one of his sons when he was very young. Um, and he was just, he did it in a studio, and, and, and the boy was really kind of pretty much without clothing. But rather than saying, wow, what a funny photograph, what a strange thing to take a picture of, what I saw in that photo was this boy's kind of basic purity, luminous skin. So that's, that's what really stopped me. It wasn't, it transcended the idea of, oh, my grandson's so cute, or look, he's wet from running through the sprinkler. It was just a, a coming to a full stop. My mind and I came to a full stop, and I was really looking at form. I wasn't looking at Aiden, my grandson. Hmm. Um, I was seeing texture, and I was seeing basic form, basic purity, the unblemished inner glow of his skin. Um, let's talk a little technical-wise. How important is, is simplicity in terms of the camera equipment that that uh, that you're using when you go out? Because I know I used to go loaded for bear with a, a bag with a bunch of <laughs> different lenses and flashes, and now I just go out with one camera and, and the 50 just to sort of just wean myself from thinking thinking so much about the equipment. Is that uh, similar to what happens to you, or is it somehow different? Or when do you choose to take more equipment than none? Well, that's, that is really a great question. Um, you know, when I was in when I was in college and also post college, I literally had a suitcase um, in the back seat of my car, which had you know foam cutouts for my twelve different lenses and different bodies and filters and all of that stuff. And I would really just kind of drive around looking for the templates, and I'd say, oh, there's the sunset. Now, if I use my 600-millimeter lens or I use my 300-millimeter lens and double it and put on a warming filter, I'm going to just great get this fantastic, huge ball of red that looks like Mars. You know, I mean, everybody's done that. And that was kind of the most outer baggage for me, literally, mm -hmm. and the inner baggage was all these ideas. So at one point, I just dumped it all, and I got myself a, a, a Nikon and a 50-millimeter lens that, that could do macro. And as time has gone by, I've pretty much kept it extremely simple, because when I go out, I have, right now I'm using a Canon Rebel XGI, which I find is extremely good quality. Um, you know, 10 megapixels you can really work well with in mm -hmm. terms of printing and showing. And I have a 28 to 90 zoom. Um, and I find that's just more than enough. Now, sometimes I may go up into the mountains here, and I, and I know that I'm probably going to be looking at more kind of distant things, distant landscapes. So I have a 1 to 300 that I may pack from time to time. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was out with a friend in Halifax, and he has a Nikon Digital, and he has a 50-millimeter 1.8. And um, when we were walking together, I said, let me just look at that camera. And, and I realized how he had gotten even more simple than I had. And it was wonderful, that kind of freedom of not even having to think about, you know, zooming here and zooming there. 
and also it had it was 1.8, so it was very bright. So I'm kind of thinking of going that way myself. I, I'd like to simplify as much as I can because I don't want my perceptions to be driven by equipment, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I don't want to say, all right, today I'm going to go out with my 1 to 300, and I'm going to shoot shots where I'm squeezing space, and I really throw the background out so much. I don't want to have perceptions guided by which lens I have. I want my perceptions to be guided by actual experience, and I found the 28 to 90, you know, it does it all, and it's really important for me to have some sort of macro capability, because... I find in Mixong it's not just kind of the big objects, but sometimes, you, like this glass on the street here in front of me, you know, with the kind of normal lens, I may not be able to express my perception. I may need to get in close because that's where the perception's happening. So small zoom lens and macro capability is really all I need. And it's wonderful to have that quality of uh, lightness when you're walking around, moving through the world, not be burdened by, you know, big tripods and a, a whole whack of lenses. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the last question that I always ask is, is I ask a photographer to recommend the work of another photographer for our listeners to check out and investigate. So who would that be for you and why? Um, well, <clears throat> one of the other Mixong instructors, um, her name is Julie DeBose. And um, Julie's also a Mixon teacher. And she's been studying this now for probably eight years. And what's interesting about Julie is that she started from nowhere. She had no particular, um, she had no photographic training whatsoever. So she was somewhat free of the uh, templates and the baggage. And so she really started from ground zero, which was, which was very interesting and has, um, over this period of time, really accomplished both this path of perception as well as she's accomplished um, the technical aspects of photography because she's learned to just keep it simple. It's very similar. She has a kind of, you know, almost normal lens and um, uses the camera not to create. I've often said in Nixong, this isn't an ask. The perceptions are not something we create from the ground up. The perceptions come out of the blue. They come from space. They come from out of the blue. They dawn in your mind and your eye. And so she's learned to use that camera simply to form the equivalent. And the other aspect of it is that I think she has a very strong, it's interesting when you take things down to the very basics, she has a very strong feminine eye, which doesn't mean, you know, womanly or girly or anything like that. It just means that her photographs have a more feminine quality, which I think, from my point of view, means somewhat more human-based, somewhat less abstract. I think some of mine are very kind of simple and abstract, and I think what she's managed to do is do photographs that have much more of a quality of living, breathing human world without any kind of concept. She's just noticing. And so there's a quality of kind of space and a 
slightly different kind of appreciation of the world we live in. And I, I think she's just one of the best woman photographers around. Yeah, her stuff is, is wonderful. And I'll have links for hers as well as yours on, on the site so people can check out. But, Michael, thank you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. I, I've really enjoyed this. It's it's really made me think. Um, it's made me really contemplate what this is. And uh, um, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you again for joining us. If you haven't already, please visit the iTunes web store. And there you can have the opportunity to write a, a little comment or a critique of the show. And I'm finding that a lot of uh, the comments that are made there have helped lead a lot of people to listening and subscribing to the show. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do that. But if you have any other comments or suggestions, please feel free to email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or leave a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Until next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.